becoming the best. This is actually a desire that fills the hearts of pretty much every single person on the planet. And it's for this reason that so many people uh, dedicate so much of their lives to becoming the very best that they can be at the things that they love doing. I remember being taught this when I was a young kid. It was actually back in the early 80s. Yeah, I'm old. And, and, and it was back in the 80s when an elderly friend of mine, he was actually teaching me karate, uh, and he was also training me to understand things by helping me to believe that I had to try to be the best. Because, listen, he said that when you're the best around, nothing's going to ever keep you down for this reason that I try my best to win them all because one day time will tell that I'm the one that's standing there when I reach the final bell. Oh wait, no, I'm sorry. I'm confusing my life with the karate kid. So (laughs) it was actually the karate kid who was encouraged to be the best around. But at the same time, listen, I have no doubt that many of us were raised to embrace this same basic philosophy, which is based on the belief that those who want to live a life that's worth living ought to become the best at whatever it is that we're passionate about. And it's for this reason that, that so many people in the world today uh, have actually dedicated their lives to becoming the best at something. They, they might not, not, not even become the best at what they enjoy, but you know, the, so many people are just trying to be the best at something, right? For example, it was back in 2001, that's when Ken Edwards became the best of the best at eating the most cockroaches in a minute. According to his record, he ate 36 of those creepy critters within 60 seconds. And so when it comes to eating cockroaches, Edwards is the best around. Nothing's ever going to keep him down, except for his lunch. In 2008, a man named Kevin Shelley was also determined to become the best at something. And it was at that point in time when he set the world record for breaking toilet seats with his head. After breaking 46 toilet seats, he discovered that this was a real crappy way of giving yourself a concussion. But he is the best at that. And not to leave the ladies out, I would point you to Cindy Jackson. You know, Jackson is a gal who was determined to become the best of the best. And it's for this reason that she set out to break the world record for receiving the most cosmetic surgeries. She's actually received 52 procedures, which includes two nose jobs, because the first one didn't take, you know, and then also a cheek and lip implants, a chin bone reduction, and then a semi-permanent makeup, because, you know, what gal doesn't want that? Now, as we consider these people who were determined to become the best of the best, no matter how ridiculous the record is, we must not fail to acknowledge the best of the best of the best. I'm referring to Ashrita Furman, who truly is the best at being the best at breaking ridiculous records. As a matter of fact, Furman currently holds records for more than 200 different categories, which include riding a a unicycle while juggling, uh, walking around with a lawnmower balanced on his chin, and let's not forget his famous record, pushing an orange with his nose for one mile. Incredible, incredible man. Without debate, Ashrita Furman is truly the best of the best of the best when it comes to, you know, the category of breaking humorous and ridiculous world records. Now, in light of these examples, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, am I wasting my time trying to become the best of the best at something? Am I truly just wasting my time 
trying to, you know, maybe break some sort of record, like the most toilet seats broken with, with the head or, or balancing a lawnmower on the chin. And maybe you're thinking, oh, no, I'm not trying to become the best of the best at, at something silly like that. With that, you know, uh, we, we ought to take a moment to, to ask ourselves, you know, am I determined to become the best of the best at, at something that the Lord isn't pleased with? Am I spending my life try, trying to become the best of the best according to, you know, my, my education track or my, uh, my employment or, or, or something else that maybe I, I might be wasting my time with? And maybe not. Maybe, maybe this is exactly what I'm supposed to be spending my time doing, but how could I know? How could I know if I'm wasting my time trying to become the best of the best at something? There's certainly nothing wrong with the goal of becoming the best of the best within the category of our career. And I would even argue that those who truly want to become the best of the best in every arena of our life, well, we ought to first make sure that we're actually becoming the best believers that we can be. That should be our first goal. And with this as the goal, we're going to spend our time today considering the instructions that Christ Jesus presented, which will help us to actually become the best believers that we can be. As we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see, first of all, that the best believers are actually teachable students. Secondly, we'll learn that the best believers are also responsible servants. Thirdly and finally, we'll learn that the best believers are dependable saints. Well, with this as the outline, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Here we find the disciples of Christ arguing about which of them would become the greatest. As you make your way to the 22nd chapter of Luke's gospel account, well, I just want to take a moment to remind you that it was in our study last week when we learned about the Passover supper that our Savior celebrated with his disciples. And it was after serving them that sacrament of the Last Supper, that's when Christ Jesus then informed his apostles that the hand of his betrayer was with them, even right there at the table. And it was at that point in time when the apostles began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do such a thing. They, they weren't engaged in self-examination, no. Uh, they were looking at one another thinking, is it him? Is it that guy? Well, without missing a beat, that's when they began to argue amongst themselves about which one of them would be the greatest apostle ever. And with this context in mind, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 22. I want to direct your attention there to verse 24. Here Luke writes, Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves." But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Now here in these verses, we find Luke, he's describing the way that the disciples disputed amongst themselves. And it's sad to say that this really wasn't the first time that the apostles argued about which one of them would be the best of the best. I'll remind you, it was actually back in Luke chapter 9, that's where we found the disciples disputing with each other as to which one of them would be the greatest apostle of of all time and and which of them would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And, And it was at that point in time when the Lord Jesus interrupted their argument and he did this by informing them that the believer who wants to become the best must first become the least. He informed them that we must become the least in order to become the greatest And I'm not so sure that they really understood the lesson. Because when we fast forward two years to the moment that we find in our text today, we once again find the same apostles engaging in the same argument. They're arguing about which of them would be the best. And as they continue spending their time disputing and debating about their position and prominence with the, within, the, within the hierarchy of heaven, you know, it seems to me that the disciples were actually failing to simply learn the lesson that the Lord had initially tried to teach them. They weren't able to learn that lesson. They didn't really grasp what Jesus was saying. And as we consider their example, well, we can see that the unteachable believer will suffer then from an arrested state of spiritual development. The unteachable believer will suffer from an arrested state of spiritual development. Conversely, the Christian who will stay teachable, well, this is the believer who will also become the best of the best, or at least the best that we can be. And the reason why is because the teachable believer is ready to receive the instructions of God's word. In order to make my case, I want to revisit the lesson that the Lord presented here in Luke chapter 22. If you would, let's back up and begin reading once again at verse 25. Here Jesus declares, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. Now, here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's helping his apostles now to understand that they were actually disputing uh, about a desire to to have a rise in rank, all in the hopes that they might somehow attain some sort of position of authority over others. And this, despite the fact that he had already encouraged them to realize that if they wanted to become great, that that they they would need to become least, that, that, that they would need to become like a child, Well, knowing that they had failed to embrace this lesson, the Lord then drives his point home and he did this by presenting them with a contrast between the kings of the Gentiles and the kids of the kingdom. Notice with me again there in verse 25, here the Lord Jesus, he refers to the kings of the Gentiles, those who exercise lordship and authority over other people. That's their whole goal, to to have lordship over others and authority over others. That's their goal. That's what they think is the greatest. But in contrast to those kings who hold political positions of power, you know, Christ Jesus, then he refers to those who are younger. He says, here's how these guys do it. Here's how these leaders do it. But to the contrary, you should do it like this. You should become like those who are younger. And that word younger, well, in the Greek, it refers to any child from birth until youth. Listen, those who are younger are effectively powerless 
you know, in comparison to a king. When you consider the authority of a king and compare that to those who are younger, babies or youth, I mean, there's no comparison when it comes to earthly power. And seeing how those who are younger are effectively powerless in comparison to kings and lords, well, there should be no doubt that the Lord Jesus here is helping his apostles to understand that those who truly want to become great in the kingdom of God, well, they need to quit thinking about this in terms of political power. You see, it's, it, the, the, the path of political power is not how you become great in the kingdom of God. In order to further grasp the point that our Messiah was making, I should take a moment to remind you that you know, it was uh, in a prior lesson that Jesus taught. We find that lesson in Matthew chapter 18. That's where Christ Jesus informed his apostles that those who want to become the greatest in the kingdom must first humble themselves like a little child. He even took a little child that was there in their midst and pointed at this child and said, like this child, be humble like this child. Because that's the path of greatness in the kingdom. Well, rather than simply repeating that lesson by reminding them that, hey, guys, I already told you, become like a little child, rather than just repeating that because they didn't receive it the first time, right? The Lord here doubles down on this doctrine, and he does this by instructing them to become like those who are younger. It's another Greek word. It says become like those who are younger, or in other words, listen, Jesus was encouraging them to become not just like a child, but like the youngest child. Just to be clear, you know, Christ Jesus here isn't suggesting that, you know, we should become like little children who are just whining all the time to get their way. That's not what he was saying. Some Christians think that's what he was saying, but it's not. It's not our job to whine our way, you know, into some sort of position. Instead here, he's presenting them with an example of those within a household who have the least amount of, of authority. Think about it, you know, when it comes to the family unit, the person with the least amount of authority in the family is always the youngest child. It's always the baby. Maybe that was you. Maybe you grew up as the baby in the family and now you're, you know, 30 years old or 40 years old and you're still the baby of the family, right? But yeah, as you're growing up, if you're the baby of the family, then everyone else looks at you as someone who has no authority. You know, even the oldest sibling is oftentimes given responsibilities over the younger kids. And yet that's what Jesus is talking about here. Don't just become like a child. Become like the youngest child in the house. The one with absolutely no authority. Those who want to become the greatest believers that they can become must become like the youngest child in the house who who is given no real position of authority or power. And in order to grasp the reason for this instruction, I want to consider the way that the, the littlest kids love to learn from the people around them. You might not know this, but little kids are, uh, are curious about everything. And, and, you know, if you've ever grown up with a, a, a smaller sibling, a, a younger brother or sister, you know, well, then, then you recognize that they're always wanting to learn something. There's, they're always asking about things. Or, or maybe you're a, pa- a parent who has raised children, and you would know then. That, that kids are constantly asking about things. They're, they're constantly asking about, you know, why this and why that. And then you answer the question. And what's the follow-up question? Why? And so you answer that question and then they go, why? And then finally you go, because I'm the parent and I said so. You know, don't do that. Don't do that. They're trying to learn. 
They're students of their surroundings and they're looking to you, the adult or the older sibling to, to provide them with information. And that's a good thing. We should encourage it. We should en- encourage our kids to be students. But according to the Lord, you know, th- those who want to become the best believers should, uh, should have a desire to learn like the younger child. The child who takes the time to investigate the world in which they live, that, that's what Jesus is pointing to. You know, they're, they're simultaneously becoming students of their surroundings as they seek to learn new things. And it's in light of this example that the Lord Jesus encourages his disciples to become like the youngest sibling who's constantly asking why. Constantly wanting to learn. You see, those who want to become the best believers must continue to be teachable students like the youngest child. I like the way that Solomon put this in Proverbs chapter 9. It's here where he declares, forsake foolishness and live and go in the way of understanding. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself and he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a just man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Christian, listen, those of us who want to accomplish great things in the kingdom of God, we must make sure that we remain teachable. We must be teachable students who are always ready to receive instruction. That's why I welcome any person to come with questions about the Bible and about you know, what the Bible says, and I, I always welcome those questions. And if in my response you say, why? I'm not going to go, because your pastor said so. You know, that's ridiculous. And if I don't know the answer, well, let's go find out together. Let's be teachable and let's be students who are always learning. Those who will continue to learn the lessons of the Lord will then increase in wisdom. And as we increase in wisdom, we become the best believers that we can be. Conversely, those who become unteachable... Well, they're unwise. They become scoffers. They, they become the ones who, who can't learn. They end up suffering from an arrested state of spiritual development, and they fail to become the best believers that they can become. And with that being the case, we should examine our own lives by asking, am I still a teachable student? Now, with this question in mind, let's consider the point that Paul was making in his letter to the Hebrew believers back in the first century. If you would hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, and let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. And as you make your way to the 12th chapter of Hebrews, I just want to take a moment to point out that the true test of teachability is based on our ability to receive correction. Yeah, that is the true test of teachability. Can we receive correction? You see, it's easy to sit here in the auditorium and nod your head yes whenever I say something that you already agreed with, but then are you really learning anything? I mean, if you already agree with me, didn't you already learn that and now you're disagreeing with what I'm saying? So when it comes to being teachable, it's a matter of also being open to more information that you didn't have before, even if within that information there comes a correction of what you believed before. With that being the case, we should take a moment to ask, am I teachable? Am I actually a teachable person? Or am I unteachable who, 
as an unteachable person, I'm quick to take offense at any word of correction. And if that sounds like something that you struggle with, well, I encourage you to consider the point that Paul is making here in Hebrews chapter 12. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 5, here Paul challenges the Hebrew believers there in the first century by declaring this. He says, you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he, for our prophets, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful nevertheless. Afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who, who what? Who are trained by it. The correction And the instruction yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to some, to those who have been trained by it. Listen, those who have a hard time receiving the corrective chastening of the Lord will then suffer from an arrested state of spiritual development because we're not allowing the chastening of the Lord to train us. Conversely, those who remain receptive to correction uh, are, are actually becoming teachable believers who will continue to be trained by the instruction and the chastening of the Lord. And in this way, those who will maintain the heart of a teachable student, those who will become like the younger child, the, the one who's ready to receive correction, well, they will also become the best believers that they can become. So we see then that the best believers are teachable students. And not only are the best believers teachable students, but it's also true that the best believers are responsible servants. Now with this as the focus, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 22. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's encouraging his apostles now to become sacrificial servants who can be counted upon. With that, I'd like to back up and begin reading here in Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 25. Here Christ Jesus declares, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater? He who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. Now here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's encouraging his apostles to realize that the best believers are not only teachable students, but the best believers are also those who are always ready to serve. For the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the word serves, which is found there in both verses 26 and 27, uh, those words there are, are translated from the same Greek word, diakonio, which is the basis for our English word deacon. So, so we're just talking about deacons here, or those who accomplish the role of deacon. 
And I realized that, you know, there are those who, you know, love titles. And, and so you get the position, the, the title of deacon. Oh, man, I've arrived. I'm a deacon in the church. So, so you're a servant. Yeah. Yeah, that's what that means. Servant. Yeah, good. We should all desire the, the position of deacon. And, and what, that, what that means is we should desire to be servants, servants of one another. It's important to understand that the same Greek word deacon here was used uh, in reference to the waiters and waitresses who serve food. So when you go to a restaurant and they bring you out food, that's the deacon of that restaurant. Now, and not only that, but the same Greek word then started being used of those who stepped up to serve within the Christian community. And that's why we call you know, those who step up to the role of servant, uh, we refer to them as deacons. And with all this in mind, I want to take another look at the statement that our Savior makes here in the middle of verse 26. Jesus declares, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger and he who governs as he who serves or, or, or those who uh, you know, uh, enter into this role of deacon. Now remember, the Lord Jesus here isn't just talking to all of his disciples. No, he's talking to his apostles. He's talking to these 12 guys who were at the very top of the hierarchy of the Lord's ministry. And so these are the guys who are governing over all the other disciples at this period of time. And yet he says, though you have this government position, so to speak, in the kingdom of heaven, you're still called to be the one who is a deacon, one who is serving. The Christians who govern have been called to become servants by following in the footsteps of the Lord who, I'll remind you, led by example as he himself came to become the servant of all. He set aside his glory and he became a bondservant coming in the likeness of men so that he could lay down his life for us. With this as the focus, I want to spend some time considering the example of Christ Jesus. And so if you would hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, I'd like you to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, specifically John chapter 13. You see it's here in the 13th chapter of John's Gospel account. Here we find the Lord Jesus preparing to serve his apostles, the, uh, the, the elements for the Seder celebration that has since become known as the Last Supper. But before the Lord served the sacred elements of that Seder Supper, he actually first took the time to wash the feet of his apostles. Now, Luke doesn't record this, but John does. And John presents us with this, uh, this moment when Jesus you know, sets, sets aside his outer garment and he takes a, the water basin and he takes the, uh, the, you know, the, uh, everything necessary. He, t- he takes the cloth and he begins to, to wash his apostles' feet. And as we consider how gross feet actually are, and trust me, uh, you might have a different opinion about this, but you're completely wrong. Feet are gross. They're grody to the max, as you might say, from the 80s. Yeah, that's why you cover them up. And and listen, all you guys with sandals and no socks on, (laughs) take a lesson from the Germans. It's, It's the right thing to do. Socks with your sandals. Feet are gross. And yet the Lord Jesus washed his apostles' feet. And listen, you know, they, they weren't coming in, you know, uh, you know, with clean feet that he just then threw some water on. No, no, they had been walking in the heat. They'd been sweating. And, you know, the, the sweat then rolls down the legs to the feet where the sandals are. And they're walking in the dirt and the muck. And they, I mean, you better believe that these guys had toe jam for days. And yet the Lord washed their feet. 
And after washing the feet, we find ourselves here in John chapter 13. Look with me there, beginning at verse 13. There he declares, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And so with that, let's bring out the, the wash basins and, and, the, and the rags. We're going to go ahead, go ahead and kick off your shoes real quick and let's just get this service started. No, seriously, you know, uh, there's churches who go through this and they, and, they, and they put on the foot washing ceremony. They tell you a week in advance so you can go get your pedicure, you know, before you show up. So everything's all nice and clean down there before, before you engage. No, that's all fake. That's all phony. The Lord Jesus was washing filthy feet. And in verse 15, he says, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, notice, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you if you do them, not just know them, Anyone can know this. You're blessed if you do it. The Lord Jesus was helping his apostles to understand the the, the reason for why he took this time to wash their feet was so that they might follow in his example and not just to say that we should have a foot washing ceremony every Sunday. No. He's saying, "I, I am the greatest in the kingdom, and yet I washed your feet. Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom. He is the king. And yet he set aside his supreme authority, taking on the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of man, even to the point of death, he served us. And yet here he presents us with this example of what it looks like to be the servant of all. And with this as the example, Christ now calls every Christian to step up and serve one another. I like the way that the Lord put it back in Luke chapter 22. Look with me back in in Luke 22. It's there in verse 27. There Jesus declares, For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. Yeah, all these guys were seated at the table ready for the Passover Seder, and yet Jesus was the one who was serving them washing their feet and getting them ready for the supper. You know, whenever you go to a fancy restaurant, maybe you've been to a Michelin star restaurant and you, and you walk in and, and you look at all of the, you know, the, the, the people with lots of money, you know, waiting for food to be delivered. And then you see the waiters and waitresses come out serving the food. Who, Who do you think is greater, you know, by way of, you know, position and power in the restaurant, the, the waiters and waitresses or, or the people who are see, seated waiting for food to be brought to them. I mean, you would assume that it's the people sitting down eating. And yet within God's economy and within the kingdom of heaven, the Lord is saying, no, no, he who serves is greater than he who is seated. And he led this by example. Christ Jesus is the king of kings and therefore the greatest in the kingdom. And yet he came and served. And now he's calling every Christian to become the best believers that we can be. And the way we do this is by answering this call to serve one another according to the example of our king. And you might be thinking, well, I don't have time to serve because I'm too busy trying to become the best at the best at walking around balancing a lawnmower on my chin. Really? 
well, okay, not that, but I've got a job, right? I've got to go, become the best of the best there. Do you? I mean, is that what Christ is calling you to become? Jesus answers this question with perfect clarity in Matthew chapter 23. It's verses 11 and 12 where he declares, he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Christian, listen. Those who try to become the best around on the path of self-exaltation and self-promotion and, and, and these sorts of things, they eventually find themselves being humbled and they're humbled as the, the Lord lovingly corrects them and brings them finally to the end of themselves when they finally realize that, wow, I've been investing my whole life in something that is meaningless. Yeah, we try to exalt ourselves and, and we try to you know, uh, you know, travel this path that is going to bring us to the place where we finally say, I'm a self-made man and I look at what I've done. And, and, and by the time we finally get there, we realize that it's empty. There's nothing there. It was all meaningless. But those who will simply humble themselves by becoming the servant of all well, they become the best believer that they can become. And the reason why is because the Lord loves to exalt those who will humbly serve one another. If we would put, a, put ourselves on that path of humility and just become his servant, then he turns around and says, oh, I'm going to exalt you now. I'm going I'm to place you up on that place you know, that you are, we're going to try to get to on your own. I like the, the way that Paul addresses this in Galatians chapter 5. It's verses 13 and 14 where he declares, you, brethren, have been called to liberty. You, you've been called to freedom. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, the Christian who wants to become the best believer that we can become, we must first realize that those who are using their own liberty to serve themselves aren't really walking in the love of the Lord. And yeah, all things are lawful. But not all things are helpful. Not all things are profitable. Yeah, we have liberty in the Lord. What for? For ourselves? Or so that we can serve others? According to Paul here, the love of the Lord will lead us to sacrifice our liberty so that we can spend our time serving one another. And as we spend our time serving one another, the Lord helps us to become the believers that he's calling us to become. Or more simply put, the best believers are those who serve one another according to the sacrificial love of the Lord. I like the way that Jesus put it in Mark chapter 9. It's there where he declares, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. In other words, the Christian who wants to become the best believer that they can become should first remember that the path of our perfection isn't taken uh, on the road of self-promotion. The path of our per per uh, perfection is taken by the believer who chooses to become the servant of all. They choose to put Christ first and others second. Rather than focusing on ourselves first, I encourage you, let's focus our faith on Jesus first. And then as we walk by faith with Jesus, he helps us to follow in his footsteps. And as we follow in his footsteps, he helps us to become responsible servants just like Jesus was. 
From this we see then that the best believers are those who are teachable students and the best believers are those who are also responsible servants. Finally, I want to consider how the best believers are dependable saints. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 22, where we find the Lord Jesus. He's encouraging his apostles now to become dependable saints, and that is not an age joke. In order to, to grasp this third and final point, uh, I want to back up and begin reading there at verse 28. It's here in Luke 22, verse 28. Here Christ Jesus declares, you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus, he's commending his apostles and he's commending them for the way that they continue to follow the Lord, even through trials and temptations. For the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the word continued it's found there in the middle of verse 28. That word is translated from a Greek word which was used of those who persevere. They persevere as they continue to endure every trial and every temptation. And so while it's true that they were the disciples who continued following Christ during the days of his earthly ministry, it's also true that they remained with him even during the most difficult of days. And in order to better grasp this compliment, I want to consider those who didn't do so well, those who actually fell away. I'll remind you, it's actually in John chapter 6, it's verse 66. There we learn that many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. In other words, those who had been following Christ for a short season of their life, they, they, they had considered themselves his disciples. But then came the day when the worries of this world and the cares of this life they, it led them to, to, to simply walk away. Rather than developing into dependable saints of our Savior who were the dedicated disciples of Christ, uh, these were those who decided that it was too costly, that it was going to cost too much for them to continue following Christ. And it's for this reason that they turned away. And they walked with him no more. Now, now, now I want to consider the contrast I want to consider the contrast between those who decided that they couldn't continue following their Christ and the dependable saints who are willing to suffer alongside of our Savior. As we consider this contrast between these two groups, there should be no doubt in our minds that the latter were those who became the best believers that they could be. Those who turned around and walked away, they didn't become the best believers that they could be. Only those who continued with Christ became the best believers that they could be. The reason why is because those who continue to walk with our Savior, even through the trials and the temptations, these are the Christians who continue to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, just as we've been predestined to be. The Father has predetermined that we should be transformed and conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. And so the question is, are we on that path? Are we heading in that direction? Are we continuing on with Christ despite the trials and the temptations? It's also important to understand that those who become the dependable saints of our Savior, well, there's blessings promised. 
There's blessing, blessings promised for those who continue with Christ. And, and one reason why is because the Lord has promised leadership positions within his kingdom. To prove my point, let's, let's take another look here at the point that Jesus is making here in Luke chapter 22. I want to focus your attention once again at verse 29. Here he declares, and I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Here in these verses, we find the Lord helping his apostles to understand that they didn't need to argue about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They didn't need to get into a debate about who's the best of the best. The reason why is because Christ Jesus was actually preparing to promote all 12 of them on the day they entered into the kingdom. The Lord had a plan to promote 12 apostles to to 12 thrones, and there on those thrones, they would judge over the 12 tribes of Israel. That was the, the Lord's plan. And according to the Lord, the 12 apostles of Christ who continued with him through his time of trials, they would be the ones who would sit on those 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Sadly, not all 12 made it. Not all 12 made it because not all 12 continued. Judas Iscariot didn't make it. And there, uh, in, in the beginning of Acts, we find Judas being replaced by Matthias. And one reason why is because Judas walked away from the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Now, now to me, I don't think that that was the final moment when, when this was all decided. Though the Lord knew it would happen. I'll remind you that Peter also denied the Lord three times. What's the difference between Peter and Judas? Well, Peter repented. Peter returned to the Lord and was embraced. Judas, on the other hand, after realizing the error of his ways, well, instead of repenting, he simply went and hung himself. And with that being the case, Judas Judas didn't continue with Christ. And he was replaced with a disciple named Matthias. And one reason why Matthias was chosen was, well, because he was one of the disciples who had accompanied the Lord from the time of the baptism until the day when Jesus ascended into heaven. And that's the, the requirement that Peter presented, that, that the, the person to replace Judas had to have been there at the time of Christ's baptism and have continued with Christ until his ascension. That is required for the 12 apostles. And and the reason why I point this out, just as a sidebar, uh, you know, there are those in the world today who claim to be the apostles of Christ. There are cults and and there are are aberrant Christian groups out there, you know, who say, say, well, we've got our 12 apostles. Here's our 12 apostles. Really? They were there at the time of Christ's baptism? They continued all the way until the ascension of Jesus Christ? The office of the 12 was closed down. And there's 12 thrones for the 12 apostles. What, are we going to stack them all up when they get there? All the apostles since the first century, we're just going to stack them all up on the same 12 thrones? It doesn't make any sense. The office of apostle is closed. And the 12 minus Judas plus Matthias, those are the ones who will sit there on those 12 thrones. There are no 12 apostles on the planet today 
sorry to our LDS friends. But Matthias was chosen to replace Judas and receive the 12th judgment throne there in the kingdom of heaven. And as we consider the contrast between Judas and Matthias, we must not fail to realize that those who want to become the best believers that we can become, uh, we should set aside the desire for earthly fame and fortune because that's what took Judas astray, his love for money. And it led him astray. And he stopped following the Lord. But Matthias continued. He became a dependable saint of our Savior and was therefore exalted in his humility and thereby receiving the 12th throne there in heaven. And while it's true that every committed Christian is going to suffer persecution along the way, much like the 12 apostles suffer persecution for their following of Jesus Christ. Listen, those who will continue following Christ Jesus, even in the midst of trials and temptations, we can rejoice in knowing that our Savior is going to shower us with everlasting rewards as we enter into the kingdom of God. And I want to consider how Jesus puts it in Matthew chapter 5, it's verses 10 through 12, where he says this. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now from this we can see that the believer who is willing to suffer persecution for the sake of our Savior, they will eventually receive everlasting rewards as we enter into the kingdom of God. Conversely, the Christian who attempts to avoid persecution in order to pursue the path of fame and fortune here in this world, well, they eventually discover that they can't transfer their earthly riches into heavenly rewards. You can work the rest of your life becoming the best of the best at making money, but as you enter into the the throne room of the Lord, he's not going to be checking the conversion rate from dollars to crowns. Not going to happen. That being the case, we should take some time to consider the connection between our commitment to Christ and the level of exaltation that we will eventually receive as we enter into the kingdom. With this as the focus, I want to consider the parable that the Lord Jesus presented during the Olivet Discourse. If you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. And as you make your way to the 25th chapter of Matthew's Gospel account, well, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the Lord Jesus was not only promising to place, uh, you know, uh, 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 a place at the table for his apostles, but, but he's also promised to, uh, that, that, that we too will have a place at the table where we will eat and drink with our Savior and, and, and enjoy his company forevermore. And, and listen, he's not only promised to exalt the 12 apostles with 12 judgment thrones there in the kingdom of heaven, but he's also promised to provide us all with positions of authority there in the kingdom. And as we consider the parable that we find here in Matthew chapter 25, well, it seems to me that the Lord has a plan to, to promote the dependable saints who faithfully followed the Lord while we were here on the earth. To make my case, look with me here at Matthew 25, beginning at verse 14. Here the Lord Jesus declares, the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to, to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. 
But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Now here in these verses, we find the Lord presenting this parable about the kingdom of heaven. And in other words, this parable was designed to help his disciples to better understand the kingdom of God and what it's going to be like. And as we consider the parallels presented in this parable, well, it seems to me that the Christians who are faithful to invest the talents that we've been given here in this world, we're going to end up receiving positions of greater authority which correspond to our Christ-centered commitment while we are here on the earth. This interpretation Well, it appears to be confirmed in Revelation chapter 5, where we find this choir of believers in heaven rejoicing as they realize that Jesus has made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. In other words, they're talking about the millennial kingdom, when those who continued with Christ Jesus will then be made kings and priests uh, within, within his kingdom there. In other words, the Lord is going to give us positions of authority as we enter into the kingdom of God and as we factor in the parable of the talents. Well, it seems to me that our level of exaltation there in heaven will be based on the commitment that we had to Christ Jesus as we served our Savior here on the earth. And it's sad to say that the guy who took his talent and hid it in the ground, well, he ended up with nothing. He ended up with nothing. Why? Why? Because he wasn't faithful with what he was given. That being the case, I encourage every Christian to become dependable saints who are continuing to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And yeah, even if our commitment to Christ results in the pain of persecution, even if it means that we have to take that pay cut or we get fired from that job or whatever the case may be. This as the goal is crucial for every Christian to make sure that we maintain an eternal perspective as we make our daily decisions. When it comes to the decisions that we make regarding how we invest our time or our talents or our treasure while we're here in this world, we need an eternal perspective because listen, when the decision comes down today that I might lose this job if I serve my Savior, well, the needs of today will certainly lead me to say, oh, I can't serve God. Because I got to make that money. That's a very finite perspective. We need an eternal perspective as we set up to invest our time and our talents and our treasures. And I'm not, I don't mean to suggest that we should just, you know, everybody lose their job. And yet, where's your focus? Are you trying to become the best of the best in the secular world? Or are you trying to become the best believer that you can within the kingdom of God? To 
further grasp the point that I'm seeking to make, I want to consider something that Peter wrote in his second epistle. If you would, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. And as you make your way to the third chapter of 2 Peter, I just want to spend a second pointing out that there is coming a day when the finite works of this world will be burned up forever. Grasp that for a moment. Everything that we invest into this world will be burned up. And yeah, you can go work extremely hard to, to, to make a name for yourself and you can go build the tower with your name at the top, the Trump Tower, you know, your bungee tower, whatever, whatever it is, you know. Yeah, it's going to get burned up. It's going to be demolished. It's going to be gone forever. That being the case, Peter encouraged every believer to factor this into the, into the equation as we make decisions for the future. Not just a five-year plan, not just a 10-year plan. We need an eternal plan. Let's consider how the apostle puts it here in 2 Peter chapter 3. Look with me there, beginning at verse 10. Here Peter declares, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Notice, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, eternal perspective, looking forward to these things. Be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless and consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. Now I want to stop there. I want to, I want to consider, Christian, that there's coming a day when the works of this world will be burned up. Everything that we invested into every secular endeavor here in this world will be burned up gone forever. And with that being the case, we should take a moment to ask, am I investing the majority of my time and talent and treasure burying it in the dirt of this world? Am I spending too much of my time on secular endeavors and too much of my talents, you know, trying to, trying to you know, create my own kingdom? Am I allowing these things to keep me from the infinite rewards that the Lord has in store for his dependable saints who serve him? And if so, then how should we adjust our lives? How should we adjust our lives so that we can focus more of our attention on becoming the best believers that we can be as we look forward with an eternal perspective? And please understand that I'm not trying to bring you to a point of application where I say, okay, you know, you have 10 hours a day for this and five hours a day for that and it's not my place. I'm not trying to present you with some sort of legalistic way of, of calculating how much time you should spend on one thing or another. But rather, I would encourage you to have the correct focus by realizing that the Lord is calling you first and foremost to become the best believer that you can be. 
And as we become the best believers that we can be, then the Holy Spirit can then guide us into how much time we spend on work and how much time we spend on activities and and entertainment and how much time we spend serving him. We need the Holy Spirit to guide us into all of these things so that we can just stay focused on continuing with Christ Jesus. And with that, I'd like to wrap up this study by reminding you that the best believers are first teachable students who are always ready to receive the instruction of God's word and the loving correction of the Lord because we have to be open to that. We have to be willing to hear from the Lord when he says, you're wasting your time on this. I want you to focus your attention back over here. We have to be teachable students to become the best believers. Not only that, but the best believers are responsible servants who are ready to sacrifice all of our liberty so that we can simply become the servants of our Savior. And finally, the best believers are dependable saints who are looking for every opportunity to invest our time and our talents and our treasure into the kingdom of God, knowing that this will have the greatest reward in the end. Then as we keep our focus fixed on the finish line of faith, we can trust that the Lord will help us to endure all the trials and all the temptations of this world. And as we move forward with our focus fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ, he will help us to become the best believers that we can be. Let's pray.